Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart, we cover ideas, academia, and sometimes chucking gravel at globalists. Yes, this week is all about the Canadian election, and it has gotten weird and acrimonious. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is being trailed by a bunch of crazy anti-vaxxers, and one of them got a little violent. At least one protester threw what appeared to be gravel or small stones at Trudeau while he was boarding his bus. The Liberal leader told reporters afterwards he was, in fact, hit, but was okay. Before all this began... Trudeau was really lagging. This is despite him calling a snap election. It was very strange. He just didn't seem prepared. But here comes the gravel. In The Guardian, Leyland Kecko put it best. These protests have energized Trudeau. I think that's exactly right. These protesters are the best thing that could have happened to him because they become an easy target. Instead of Trudeau being on the defensive about his own record, he goes on the offense. He gets to do righteous indignation. Yes. Uh, I felt some of that gravel. I am staying focused not on me on this, but on how we make sure that everyone who isn't surrounded by security guards and uh, well-wishers who have my backs, everyone who is walking into a hospital on their own for a late-night shift, who's worried about some anti-vaxxer that might come scream at them and try and rip off their mask. Those are the people that I think about. Those are the people I want to defend from being tossed gravel at, from being spat on, from having someone... It's worked, and it's getting so much airtime in Canadian media. It's all, why are we so mad? Now, the gravel thing, admittedly, is disturbing, and it does seem like a new low in Canadian politics. We like to think of ourselves as polite, as civilized, as genteel. But actually, when you do some research, it doesn't really stand up. In fact, this has happened to Trudeau himself. Well, it happened to his dad. This is from the New York Times now, Saturday, August 21st, 1982. I quote, A crowd of about 500 demonstrators surrounded a train carrying Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau of Canada, and some pelted his railroad car with rocks, eggs, and tomatoes. Yes, today we go deeper into the pit. The Canadian federal election is this Monday, and here on Darts, we think to understand it, we actually need to go into our past. We're going to look at a few other elections and tell you the intellectual and political history of the three major parties. Darts is back. Let's go. To know Justin Trudeau, you have to know Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Senior really understood the left. In fact, he was academically trained by a Marxist, and a lot of people thought he was a socialist. He wasn't. Neither is Junior, of course, but Christo Avalis is. He wrote a book on Trudeau Senior, and he draws us a straight line from father to son. 
I think he has that same kind of vision for liberalism in Canada, which is that it's a way of like preserving a system of capitalism that protects the interests of the elite that through good rhetoric gets broad approval from the people. We also have a segment on Canada's right wing. So-called right populism is on the rise, and it's not just the gravel chuckers, it's the Conservative Party of Canada. They are trying to appeal to working class voters, and this has happened before. Historian Stephen Hyde takes us back to the election of 1993. This is an election where the right-wing Reform Party actually flipped NDP voters. Could they do it again? It was a, a really radical ideas. We're not coming from the left anymore, but we're coming from the right. And and the left was, you know, was sort of caught in a defensive kind of mode where in a way they're like the new conservative party. Is the Canadian left conservative? We're gonna take a microscope to Canada's Social Democratic Party, the New Democrats. Actually, we're gonna look at its prehistory. Professor James Naylor tells us the story of how the NDP purged its labor socialist base. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. We need your support. If you like what we do, I want you to chip in. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Now, doing this show, you already know it is not about chasing the clicks. It's not about reacting to the headlines. It's not about giving you a hot take. Each episode has so much more than that. It takes dozens and dozens of hours of prep. Not just finding the guests and booking them, but going through all of their work, going through the archives, reading the history, I think that gives you a broader picture. Like this episode, I was deep in Canadian political history, with NDP and the Grits especially. But the reason I did it is because I think it makes for a better show. It makes for a show that offers you something different. So if you like that, I need your support. Please pitch in on Patreon. Thanks to our two most recent patrons, Sam Rowan and Rose Palazzo. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early, and once enough of you chip in, I'm going to make exclusive bonus materials. Okay, on with the show. The NDP has gentrified. Historically, this is the party of socialists, of Christian activists, of populist farmers, and radical intellectuals. But today, this party does not call itself socialist. Their most recent success really was the orange wave of Jack Layton, but we're talking 10 years ago. The leader after Leighton, of course, was Tom Mulcair. And amazingly, sounding like Stephen Harper, he ran on a platform of balancing the budget. Voting public and say, the days of downloading these massive debts onto the provinces, the days of leaving on the backs of future generation this massive debt because you don't know how to manage, those days are over. We both know what we have to do. We know what the public interest is, and we're going to manage with one thing in mind, getting to balance budgets and protecting the public interest. This let Justin Trudeau run to Mulcair's left. Well, ostensibly to his left. I say that because a lot of people would dispute the idea that Trudeau is really that progressive. And if you look at his record, I think that basically holds up. But you can't dispute this. In that election, Trudeau painted himself as basically a Keynesian, and he's governed that way. And if you take yourself back, you know, we're talking 2015 now, this was after almost 10 years of Harper austerity more austerity simply wasn't going to capture the imagination of Canadians, especially left-wing Canadians. So clearly, this was a huge blunder for the NDP. 
and it turned out to be a disastrous election. The party lost over half their seats. In the leadership race that followed to replace Mulcair, the left was most excited about Nikki Ashton. She was invoking this Corbyn or Bernie-style politics, and places like Jacobin gave her glowing coverage. But it was Jagmeet Singh who would win. Left Futures described him as flashy but centrist, and I think that is perfectly fair. In the election that followed, he initially floundered, lost about 20 seats. But since then, he's built a rather charismatic brand. He's very popular on TikTok, and now he has this. Slash randomness announcement of the campaign. We are launching our very own island on Animal Crossing. So for all the Animal Crossing players out there... More substantively, he's made some nice overtures to the left. He's been calling out the ultra-rich. He supported a wealth tax. He's proposed some big spending, especially on healthcare, especially pharmacare and home care. Still, it doesn't go far enough. He seems to keep flirting with having an ambitious vision, but he walks it back. He would eliminate some student debt, but not all. He would give you dental, but a means-tested dental. His housing plan is vague and clearly just not up to the task. He will put some price controls on cell phone bills, but he doesn't have a real plan to rein in telecom monopolies. Where is his audacity? Where is his ambition? Let's be honest. This is a party in distant third place. So what do they have to lose? They should be bold. And when you look at the young NDP base, they are saying the exact same thing. They want a genuine left party. In the last federal convention, they did pass some strong resolutions, like suspending weapons sales to Israel, and they pushed for even stronger ones, like creating a public telecom, abolishing billionaires, canceling student debt, and many others. But these things just didn't happen. Now, the left of the NDP is fighting the Lord's work, but still, at the end of the day, I think Singh's NDP is basically a left liberal party. They are running on the liberals' terms. They just do not have the kind of radical imagination that it's going to take to really distinguish them. But it didn't start out that way. The NDP's predecessor, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, they had a very radical vision. In their 1933 Regina Manifesto, they actually called for the eradication of capitalism. So how do they start like that and they end up like this? The long and winding history here is fascinating. And for that story, we are going to turn to Brandon University professor James Naylor. He wrote, The Fate of Labor Socialism, The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and the Dream of a Working Class Future. This is an abject lesson in the dangers of fake friends. The book reveals how a radical base of labor socialists were usurped by middle-class intelligentsia. Later, turncoats within the party purged it of its radical base, and the party turned right. It got institutionalized, its radicalism was blunted, and it accepted what the post-war welfare state would give them. Professor Naylor begins this story at the CCF's founding conference in 1932. Of course, the NDP started as the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and it was started in 1932 at a conference called by the Western Provincial Labor Parties. And it was an occasion for them to get together and try to build something bigger and more effective and potentially broader, which is 
part of the story I'm going to get at. The backstory really has to do with the Winnipeg General Strike, and there was a wave of strikes like that across the country in 1919. And the amazing thing, I think, about 1919 was that it was explicitly a kind of working-class explosion. Not only was it a series of strikes, but across the country, and this had started before the war, but really came to fruition at the end of the war, labor parties were formed. And they were called labor parties, often the independent labor party, which is really interesting when you think about it, because it implies not so much a political program, you know, like liberal or conservative or even socialist, but labor, right? That labor workers actually have something to say and something to contribute to the world simply on the basis of being labor. And that social identity really was behind the 1932 meeting in many ways. In the 1920s and into the 1930s, of course, by 1932, Canada and the world was mired in the Great Depression, which was a crisis of capitalism, right? The capitalist economic system had ceased to function in ways that provided any kind of well-being to people at all. And so there was a sense that there had to be a sort of working-class solution to this. Just as in 1919, there was a sense that there should be a working-class solution to the series of crises that occurred during World War I. It's kind of a ragtag group of people, right? You've got the farmers or populists, you've got Christians, you've got socialists, and also kind of a burgeoning interest in socialist politics from kind of a managerial, technocratic, and sort of intelligentsia. So what was it like to sort of bring all those people together in those early days? Yeah, that's a really interesting story because the founding meeting that kind of planned the CCF in Calgary in 1932 wanted to create a kind of work, an organization that would have a kind of working class vision and program for the country, but they also recognized their own weakness in many ways. Workers, people who worked for wages, were still not a majority in the country, at least those who worked full-time for wages. And so they recognized that they had to organize more widely. They also had an interesting sort of notion that was developing during the 30s, was these other social classes, which they tended to lump together as the middle class, right? People who were not wage workers, but were not the capitalists, right, the big capitalists, this wide circle of people were impacted by the Depression, right, some of them very severely, especially farmers and a lot of small business people, so on, professionals even. And they were interested in doing something, but they were also afraid that if they weren't attracted to kind of working class leadership to develop a a sense that as workers who could get us out of this, they'd be attracted to something that was arising in Europe that was far more dangerous, right? Fascism. And socialists in everywhere in this period, their view of what fascism was, was a kind of radicalization of the middle class, right? Those were the types of people who were attracted to right-wing politics, which is often the case, right? That's the case today. That's a lot of the basis of Trumpism and so on, is that kind of small business people and so on. And so they felt that it was actually important to organize those people and get them into their organization. And so they actually developed a structure that would be able to do that. The CCF, when it was formed in 1933 in Regina, 
was not a membership party. It was a coalition. It was an umbrella organization which other organizations could join. And so the labor parties, the socialist parties, those who had a kind of working class project, uh, maintained their own organizations within it and felt that they could provide leadership to it all. But other individuals and organizations could kind of join themselves, organizations first, and then they set up what were called CCF clubs for individuals to join and be part of that. So what came of the meeting? What kind of manifesto did they come up with? Oh, yeah, the famous uh, Regina Manifesto. The Regina Manifesto is sort of one of the famous Canadian political documents. Essentially, it outlined uh, a view of the world from the intellectuals, the radicalized intellectuals, which was in some ways quite technocratic. It was an odd document in that it outlined how everything would be run in order to eliminate poverty and so on, which is a bit of a different tradition, obviously, than labor, which didn't think in those kinds of status technocratic terms. But it was still explicitly socialist, right? It ends with a kind of ringing declaration that, you know, the CCF will not rest until socialism is accomplished. I have that here. I, just for the benefit of our audience, I'll just read it. No CCF government will rest content until it has eradicated capitalism, put into operation the full program of socialized planning, which will lead to the establishment in Canada of the cooperative commonwealth. It does seem quite radical, but the book, you know, there's sort of different readings of it. There are radical readings of it. There are reformist readings of it. I mean, how, how radical really is the Regina Manifesto? Within the party, regardless really of what people thought, it was the kind of founding document for everybody, and they referred back to it in their own way. It did lend itself, as I suggest, to a kind of particular role of the intellectuals and so on. Uh, and a certain view of the state. One of the interesting things about the political labor movement, the labor and socialist parties at that time, is in many ways they didn't really have a political program. Their political program was labor should rule, right? That a world run by working people would know what to do. This was a different way of kind of viewing the world and lent itself to a kind of welfare state in some ways, a kind of Keynesian state where the state plays a role in running the economy in certain ways, rather than a working class led society. Right. I mean, the labor socialists that are organizing so vociferously, like in the general strike in 1919 and up to Regina, are quite radical. But I guess uh, I'm curious as to why at this sort of critical juncture, suddenly the middle-class intelligentsia take on such a role and, and the document that comes out of this isn't more informed by that sort of prehistory. They more or less showed up with a document. And to a large extent, most of what they were saying in their broad outlines was not problematic, right? There was, it's not that labor socialists didn't want some kind of plan as opposed to chaotic capitalism, which was undermining everybody's well-being in the 1930s. And so they weren't necessarily opposed to it. So there was relatively little debate. Nobody very much wanted to undermine the unity that was developing. You know, that was really important. And so to be really kind of, the word we'd use today perhaps would be sectarian, right? To have this type of infighting serve nobody's purpose. Finally, the 
the two largest and most radical labor socialist organizations, the British Columbia Socialist Party and a similar group in Ontario, were not well represented at Regina, right? You have to remember that this is a depression, right? People either had jobs and couldn't leave them for a long period of time, or they couldn't afford to go to Regina since they didn't have very much money. The people who could go afford to go were these kinds of middle-class academics and so on, and a whole lot of local farmers who attended. There's kind of a turn in your book where a purge happens, where labor socialism is really marginalized in the CCF. And I wanted to sort of like reconstruct a little bit of the story. Like to me, the, the villain that really stood out was this former liberal Elmore Philpot. Is he maybe the place to sort of center this story or where does that purge happen? It happens in Ontario and Elmer Philpott is perhaps the most interesting character. Elmer Philpott was a World War I veteran, a disabled veteran. He had been uh, a liberal and he was closely tied to the Ontario Liberal Party. There's some question whether he ever really left the Ontario Liberal Party, but he was a very effective speaker and he kind of drew the ire of the labor socialists in Ontario, right? And they saw him as a charlatan, in part because of his politics that were often all over the place. He would often red bait his opponents and so on in, in mm. a language was, that was seen as inappropriate. And he essentially got together with uh, some of the leaders of the League for Social Reconstruction and J.S. Woodsworth with a plan to uh, purge the labor conference, as it was called, in on which was the branch of the CCF that was the Labour Socialists. And there have been a few kind of hot points, right? The, as part of the iconography of all of this, the Labour Socialists always like to march on May Day, right, with the communists and so on. And for Philpott and some of the League for Social Reconstruction folk, their feeling this was that these people are, you know, they're just all acting like communists. And so there's a purge of the Ontario CCF. And even though the labor socialist group was central and strong to it, the structure of the Ontario CCF, which was each of the three branches, were equally represented. And so there was the CCF clubs, which was the middle class and the intelligentsia. There were the farmers, United Farmers of Ontario, and the Labour Conference. And so the purge could be carried out because they could vote two to one to kick out the, the Labour Conference. And interestingly enough, as soon as the Labour Conference was kicked out, the farmers actually quit the Ontario CCF anyhow, uh, since they were only barely affiliated and really were not part of that world. So they, they were expelled, although there's an interesting corollary to this event, because once they were evolved, uh, expelled, who's left in the Ontario CCF? A fair number of people, but not very many people with insight, analysis, and political experience. And so very quickly, the leadership of the Ontario CCF begins to realize that they're leading, you know, in their, I forget their exact language, but an organization full of nuts. And so actually, Labour Party people dwindle back into the CCF. They kind of rejoin. The structure of it changes. 
in many ways. And they often join CCF clubs and so on. And there's a bit of a movement towards the CCF in Ontario and then in other provinces taking on sort of the structure of a membership organization, much like a modern political party. That's a great transition to the next question that I had for you, and it's about the war and what happens to the CCF post-war. The war changes Canadian society and changes Canadian politics in all sorts of ways. One of the things it did really was to remake the Canadian working class, right? Canada industrialized at a breakneck pace, and there's a new set of workers Right, without the kind of social and political history of workers through the 1930s, by the middle of the war, they become quite active, trying to gain workers' rights, better wages, all sorts of things. And by 1943, there's a big strike wave. A third of all Canadian workers went on strike in 1943. But what they were fighting for is really kind of interesting because it's different from what workers uh, were fighting for in the 1930s. One of the things that they were fighting for in World War II was for actually the state to play a different role. They were fighting for, in many ways, reforms. And so it's important to back up for a second because in the 1930s, labor socialists if you ask them, would deny that they were fighting for reforms. They would say reforms are good, but the problem is the system. First of all, they really didn't believe that reforms were possible, right? The relationship of workers to the state up to the end of the 1930s, certainly, was one of conflict. They only met the state really as people who oppressed them, right? Police, military, during the Depression, relief officials who essentially punished them for being poor. So fast forwarding a little bit here, we have another important meeting and another important manifesto in 1956 in Winnipeg where the NDP is formed. Can you compare what comes out of that and the statement of principles there versus the Regina Manifesto? What's similar? What's different? Yeah, the Winnipeg Declaration in 1956, which did a couple of things. It set in motion the creation of the NDP, which took place over a few years. But it really did drop references really to socialism and class in the manifesto and talked about the construction of a mixed economy, really sort of left liberalism. Mm-hmm. Did it have any reference to class in the Statement of Principles? Not really. I think there may have been one mention. I, there's uh, somebody... Um, who counted them hmm. in various manifestos, but it really didn't. Not that class was not important to the CCF in the 1950s, but it was class in a different way. It never presented the working class as the subject of changing society. It, it simply kind of imagined a, a citizenry without sort of class markers in that way. They certainly supported the aims of labor, but labor was simply part of the system. They weren't, as they were in the 1930s, standing in some ways critically outside of the system. So what do you think is lost in this transition? What is lost in some ways is the ability to act and think outside of the bubble. Labor is very much incorporated into a kind of bureaucratic system. And the for unions, the industrial relations system that came out of World War II is a very bureaucratic one, right? That, for instance, 
it was an important gain for labor since they want a real kind of organizational security. But at the same time, for instance, union leaderships are responsible for enforcing the collective agreement to make sure that their members obey it, right? And so they're part of policing a system very much. It's not that they're just an interest group, right? One of the things about the CCF NDP is it does, in an interesting way, preserve the notion of the working class being agent in history, but it's really, they're a player sort of with the others. Reflecting on the NDP of today, I'm, I'm just kind of curious if we go sort of back to that prehistory and think about the kind of critiques that the more strident radicals, you know, in BC and in Ontario had of incrementalism and of institutionalization and of propping up and continuing capitalism. What, what do you think they would have said about the NDP of today? I think the best way of thinking about this is to think of what's been lost that would be useful today. Because this period of reform really was quite short, right, from 1945 to about 1975, right, where when it begins to fall apart, right, in the beginning of a period that we identify now as neoliberalism, where the pie is not growing as quickly, right, to give workers bits of it and so on. And there was, starting in the 1970s, a crisis of profitability, which turned employers into being a lot more vicious in some cases, in kind of refusing reforms. So this period of uh, neoliberalism, you know, is marked by increased demands for austerity, for rollback of labor's kind of legislative rights, right? The labor codes in various provinces have been diminished over time and so on. And so the kind of structure and strategy which seemed um, to make a lot of sense to a lot of people in the 1950s in an era of prosperity and so on doesn't really equip people very well to fight back, to kind of figure out strategically what to do now. And in part, it really is, you know, what the NDP has trouble doing very much now is thinking beyond parliament, right, of really kind of mobilizing labor itself, but all sorts of other allies, you know, to kind of take a lead in the way that labor socialists did in 1930, 1933, of kind of other sectors of society. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent at all we can even draw kind of a through line. I mean, when I look at the NDP of today, I mean, ever since really Mulcair ran on a pretty conservative sort of balancing the budget platform. I've been completely disillusioned um, with them. Now I see, a, you know, a little bit more optimism, but then again, you know, we've got a means-tested dental program, some forgiveness of student debt, but not all of it, a housing plan that doesn't really seem serious, little on monopoly power, provincial governments that are in the bed with natural resource extraction. Like, it seems to me like a very, very different party than the Regina Manifesto. No, it is a very different party. And part of the problem, of course, is thinking from the inside in a certain way. Because what you're describing is the NDP trying to imagine how to manage the capitalist state, right? And maintain profits and so on, so that it doesn't all collapse. But although one of the interesting things which is happening now, and I think the pandemic kind of is important to it, because people are talking about labor in ways that they haven't for a very long time, right? There is a kind of 
increased understanding of the ways in which labor is crucial to society. To Singh's credit, he has used the, the term working class. Yeah. And there is a sense that a kind of working class solution in some ways is kind of get out of this. There is a growing sense, too, that capitalism, you know, and people think about this inquietly, is kind of incompatible with um, solving the climate crisis. Right, that they do recognize that the natural workings of capitalism have led to increasingly gross inequalities, all those kinds of things. Right, so it, the questions are constantly being posed, but the NDP itself, I think, is mostly poised in a position where they can't think of things in those terms, right, because of who they are and what they do. That was Professor James Naylor. He wrote, The Fate of Labor Socialism, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and the Dream of a Working Class Future. If you want a comprehensive history of the early CCF and its radical ambitions, check the book out. It's also a really great story about the relationship between working class politics and left intelligentsia. In the last segment, I mentioned that Trudeau ran ostensibly to the left in that 2015 election. In that election, Trudeau had a mantra, sunny ways. Sunny ways, my friends, sunny ways. This swept him into a surprising majority government, and his campaign along the way was promising big spending, social justice, and an optimistic future. As we've said on this episode and on this show before, really, much of that was just fake. He's proven to be a servant of Canada's business elites. But you have to ask yourself, how does he keep doing it? How does he keep winning? Well, part of the answer is this. He knows the left. He knows what buzzwords to hit, and he knows when he needs to listen to our discontent. And he knows when he doesn't. He always happens to listen when he's worried about the threats to capital. He said as much to business audiences. This is recounted in a recent piece by friend of show, Luke Savage. In 2015, Trudeau told the Canadian club in Toronto that, quote, if we don't deliver fairness, fairness, Canadians will eventually entertain more radical options. This is a lesson that Justin clearly learned from his dad. So we've got to return to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Because there's a through line here. There's a through line between senior and junior. Neither are leftists, but they do understand the left just enough. Just enough to channel progressive energies back into business-friendly programs. Put simply, they've learned the critiques of capitalism so they can save capitalism. That is the picture that emerges when you read The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor, and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. It's written by historian, commentator, YouTuber, and NDP supporter, Christo Avalis. As the title suggests, this is a history of the relationship between the liberals and the left. And I think this is the story you really need to understand to know why the liberals are Canada's natural governing party. I was really keen to talk to you about the grits, interestingly, even though you're an NDP guy, but the book that you wrote about Pierre Trudeau Sr., The Constant Liberal, I found really fascinating and also um, 
at least in the very last chapter, quite prescient. So I thought maybe just to get us going, I wanted to read a little bit of a quote here. You were looking ahead and you said, how will Justin's progressive beginning end up over his years in power? As the New York Times recently noted, it is now Trudeau's Canada again. But this does not merely imply the socially progressive image of his father or how Canadians have felt about themselves. It could also imply that when faced with adversity from powerful interests, Justin might retreat quickly from his left-leaning promises and rhetoric, offering to Canadians, like his father did, a dose of pessimism as his tenure goes forward. So you wrote this in 2018. How do you feel about the words now? I did kind of write that passage in 2018 and felt pretty confident in it. And I still feel quite confident in it because you see a man that when things are easy, he'll offer the progressive rhetoric. He'll throw some decent policies from time to time. No one's suggesting he's done nothing of value. I think most people, even progressives, would say that the child tax benefit, the Canadian child benefit, has been a good policy. But when it ever comes down to, you know, will I stand against the rich with the working class? He hasn't done that. What was it that made you write this? Did you have a sense based on you know his own record, or was this really based on the history you wrote about Pierre Elliott Trudeau? A bit of both, right? Like Justin Trudeau rose relatively quickly. His first big moment, you could say, is at his father's funeral. He gives a eulogy. Everyone really loves it. Doesn't enter politics immediately. Does his own thing for a few years. Does blackface a couple times more. Eventually gets elected as the MP for Papineau is a backbencher, votes for Harper's budgets multiple times, defends them, and then becomes liberal leader and adopts this sort of savior mentality based on the fact that he is young, handsome, charismatic, has the Trudeau name, and is able to sort of take a party that was seen, correctly or not, as, as on the way out of history. And so his rise was very quick. And I think the comparisons to his father are unavoidable because, you know, they're, they're father and son. But I think that my sense was that they were doing something very similar, which was to simultaneously offer a very progressive rhetoric, whether it was Pierre Trudeau saying, you know, we're building a just society in 1968, right? In his first campaign, where Justin Trudeau would say something sort of similar where he said, you know, in Canada, better is always possible, right? Like that we, we have this boundless optimism. Yet, for both of those cases, they were able to very directly and indirectly assure Bay Street and other elites that this is not going to be a radical challenge to the status quo. And so Justin Trudeau packed his cabinet with Bay Street types. His finance minister, at least for the first four years, five years of power, was a Bay Street elite. You know, he was very clear to not increase taxes on corporations or the wealthy in any meaningful way. And Pierre Trudeau, quite similarly, when he ran for that first election, he said, we're going to build a just society. But he also said things like, you know, government isn't a Santa Claus. We need to have tighter budgets and smarter budgets, again, sounding more like a, a Republican than a Canadian liberal in some ways. And so it's this balance of your rhetoric that really typified both of them. And then it's just like the structure of the Liberal Party in Canada, which exists as a steam valve for capital in a way. And, it, and it's very telling that they like to present themselves as like 
the party that represents the broad middle class, but we see that they will take objectively unpopular positions because they are popular with the right people. One example being the wealth tax. Um, the wealth tax, as proposed by the NDP in the last election and in this one, has about 80% support among Canadians, including a supermajority of Liberals, Greens, NDP, Conservative, and Bloc voters. Every party a supermajority. And yet Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole and Blanchette, to be fair, all voted against the wealth tax in the last parliament. So Justin Trudeau is very clear. He will take objectively unpopular positions when those positions happen to be popular mm. with you know, the upper echelon of Canadian society. And Pierre Trudeau would do much the same during uh, tax reform proposals back in the uh, late 60s, early 1970s, where he largely took the side of professionals and accountants and, and business elites over working class demands. So I'm curious about Trudeau Sr. and like where he starts sort of intellectually and politically. You know, you write he, he starts at Harvard and then LSE. Like who are his big formative ideological influences? My argument is that while he is influenced by socialists, maybe more than anyone in those early years, whether it's Harold Lasky, you know, the one of the intellectuals, uh, giants of the Labour Party and of, of socialism and capitalism in Britain, or whether it's Frank Scott, more locally, a Montreal scholar, poet, lawyer, uh, foundational voice in the CCF. These men deeply influenced him. They were socialists. Can I just stop you there? Who, who is Lasky? Lasky was a professor at the London School of Economics and had written a lot of foundational works on non-Stalinist communist, mm -hmm. like non-Soviet communist vision of society, like a deeply anti-capitalist vision, uh, who was very influential on Pierre Trudeau. And, and Pierre Trudeau started a PhD and ultimately never finished, and, but Lasky would have been his PhD supervisor. And so he was deeply influential. And so he studies all of these things and he gets an appreciation for the working class. He gets an appreciation for socialism in a sense, but he still remains a liberal. And he still, I think, is optimistic that at least in Canada, like class conflict isn't inevitable. It's like a new society mm. with like lots of openness. Of course, all of it's stolen from indigenous people. That doesn't come up very much, but that like there's still an opportunity to build this. And then he comes back to Quebec in the late 1940s, gets involved in the asbestos strike, eventually gets involved with the CCF. But what you find actually is that Trudeau certainly supports some CCF policies, some economic and social reforms of the left. But the main reason he gets involved, at least this is my argument, with the left in Canada is that the left is the only party actually espousing certain elements of liberalism. That like, be it the federal liberal party or the federal conservatives or liberals in Quebec, they were more willing to tolerate violations of civil liberty than the CCF. At the same time, right, this is a time when when the the CCF moves to the right as well, right? It becomes more more liberal in a sense, right? More more aligned. In a sense, yeah, that that is certainly part of it. That, that is at a critical juncture. Although Trudeau joins before or is more involved before like the 1956 Winnipeg Manifesto, for example. But as the 50s roll on, for a variety of reasons, the liberals becoming a bit more reform-minded in Quebec and Trudeau getting the sense that the CCF is failing to reach French Canadians, which they did. He was actually accurate in that sense. He becomes more connected to the Quebec Liberal Party 
through strategy and also through the sense that the CCF was too centralist in its objectives, that the CCF was too willing to uh, concentrate power in Ottawa, and he felt that would never convince Quebec voters. And so he basically becomes a supporter of the Liberal Party sort of after 1960, but never really joins and again makes a flip very briefly back to the NDP in 1963 when Lester Pearson, the guy he would replace as as liberal leader and prime minister, accepts nuclear weapons from the United States. And so he did that. And a couple of years later, he joins the Liberal Party, again, with the argument being that it's a mixture of pragmatism, that it's a mixture of which party understands Quebec's position within Confederation. But I think it's also just a matter of ideology and that the Liberal Party reflects Trudeau's kind of social capitalism better than an NDP that, while not quite the CCF of the 1930s, is still in many ways a democratic socialist party. It's interesting how tied up in labor he is. I mean, in the book, you recount you know, him teaching courses and like labor studies and people loving him, being part of the asbestos strike. But I mean, as you said earlier, he's certainly not espousing class conflict, but he does have a decent handle on on the issues of labor. So could you unpack that a little bit more? What exactly is his view on the conflict between workers and management? Well, his argument, again, this was partially based on civil liberties, that Trudeau, to some degree, in opposition to when he was prime minister, when he would use his powers to rather clamp down on unions' right to strike and protest and collectively bargain, in many ways, more than any other prime minister after him, he jailed labor leaders, He shut down their right to bargain collectively, effectively for three years, things that Stephen Harper would never dream of doing. Pierre Trudeau did. During the 1950s, when most of his labor activism happens, he sees unions as a force for modernization in Quebec. He sees Hmm. Quebec as a backward society, right? And that Quebec was being left behind in this like clerical Catholic nationalist vision of the province. And unions were uh, part of like this modernizing force of capitalism. So it's almost like unions were part of like the capitalist system that were dragging Quebec forward. And so for Trudeau, it was a mixture of these are groups clearly demanding their right to strike and protest, which was seen as a liberal, right, a small L liberal right, at least in some sense. And they're also demanding free representation uh, the right to choose their own union. Uh, you know, free association is a, a small L liberal right. And then also he saw unions as a way of dulling class conflict in some ways. That if you don't have collective bargaining and if you don't have certain social reforms, well, then by and large, the working class is just going to get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. And like they're going to eat the dark fruits of class conflict. He uses that line at some point. I, I think I quoted it in my book somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And he basically says, you know, it's either collective bargaining or the guillotine in some ways, right? So part of this is that steam valve of capitalism. And Trudeau is warning his fellow elites. Again, Pierre Trudeau wasn't born wealthy. His father was, I believe, successful, but not wealthy. And so while he was helping a lot of workers and sort of doing it quasi pro bono a lot of the time, part of this, I think, was like a warning to his fellow elites being like, if we don't do something, this is going to get worse. And if you want to preserve the system that gives you luxury, you got to skim a little bit of that cake and give it to the masses. Mm. I think a good amount of listeners would be surprised to know 
just how extensive his knowledge of left-wing thought and left-wing organizing really is, given you know what we've discussed in terms of him being you know a through and through classical liberal. So I guess my question is like, why do you think he really sort of jumped into the deep end of sort of left-wing thought, and why didn't that stick for him? I think he saw in the CCF NDP like more of the authentic left liberalism than he did in any iteration of the liberal party at the time. And that with the liberal party becoming more akin to him, it's like he doesn't really move to the liberal party. The liberal party moves to him in some ways. It becomes like more to the center where Trudeau is never really a right-wing liberal. He's usually on the left wing of his party. And I think that kind of reflects that value. I mean, Trudeau, for instance, would say when he was prime minister, uh, there were times where he wanted to do something a bit more progressive and was able to sort of bully his right wing liberals into saying, well, if you don't do this, the CCF or the NDP is going to win more seats. So let me nationalize something or let me pass this new program and then we can take credit from the NDP and we'll win more seats next time. Mm. And so he was able to do that as well. He simultaneously thinks that the CCF NDP is one, too centralist. They do not respect provincial autonomy. And two, they are too soft on Quebec nationalism. AKA they're too willing to respect demands for Quebec to be seen as a distinct society and as a nation. And he says those two things disqualify the NDP even beyond economic ideology. And he sees the Liberal Party as the only party that will preserve federalism, as he understands it. Reviewing his record as PM, as people of the left, do we look at someone like Pierre Trudeau and think, okay, well, you know, he's a liberal, but he's a left liberal, so we should be sort of optimistic about what he does because it could be worse? Or is this kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing that actually um, serves to blunt emerging progressivism in the country? Well, it depends, right? There are, there are moments in his caucus where he is pushing for more expansion of certain programs. And he will use the prospect of left-wing victory to sort of scare his right wing to do that. But then again, there are other moments where he clearly chooses the right wing in his cabinet. For instance, there are significant levels of support within the Liberal Party, a membership, and within certain members of the cabinet even, for a basic income in the early 1970s. And it's been proposed by some people in his cabinet. It's got support from labor. It's got support from the NDP. Even some conservatives support it. But ultimately, Trudeau uh, defers to John Turner, his finance minister, who says, we don't have the money, blah, blah, blah. And he defers to them. Pierre Trudeau offered a lot of progressive reforms, and he did in many ways, but he was also uh, not afraid to use force, both like intellectual force and physical force against the left. Again, throwing workers in jail, uh, union leaders in jail, effectively eliminating the right to strike and bargain collectively for three years in the 1970s, and then doing so again to federal public servants in the early 1980s during his you know return to power after he briefly loses to Joe Clark. And so I think on the whole, my argument is that It's a mixture because there are global transitions in capitalism that are bigger than Canada, but that in general, at that crucial interval, he chose to emphasize this crisis period as a way to like reassert values of capitalism. 
Is this an about face? Because in the, you know earlier we were talking about him being a friend of labor, maybe not necessarily a card-carrying member of the union, but certainly someone with um, a sense of unions being a force of modernization. And uh, I, I think the argument is that in some ways, like unions had served that purpose, mm. and now unions are like an enemy of progress in some ways. And so Trudeau would say this, but often his cabinet would say it. One of his labor ministers said basically Bryce Mackesy that like unions are supposed to be the force for workers, but unions and demanding higher wages are hurting workers because they're driving up mm -hmm. inflation. And so unions need to agree to take less wages and work longer hours and have less benefits because that's the patriotic thing to do for the country to keep inflation lower. And so he would cast unions in, in many ways doing the right wing thing, which mm -hmm. is that unions were great, they're still here. We they still have value, but they're not as victimized as they used to be. And they're big and strong now, and they need to take more responsibility. And I think that he had a different philosophy on how to control the working class. The right-wing mentality, like the Reaganite mentality is just get rid of unions. The Trudeau mindset is just sort of ironically presaged by his writings in the 40s, is he said unions, when they actually lose their ability to meaningfully challenge anything, just become a tool within capitalism. But that's what Trudeau tried to manifest into reality in the 70s and 80s, as he tried to suggest, well, actually, what collective bargaining should be, it never came to fruition, but this is what his goal was, is that we'll use a formula, and the formula will give a maximum amount of new things you can demand, whether it's more wages or better benefits or more vacation dates, and it'll all be given a score. And the union can collectively bargain for how they allocate those points. <laughs> they will not be allowed to strike for more than that point system. And arbitrators will not be allowed to offer more than that point system. And the point system will be based on private sector comparators, because he's doing this with the federal public sector, except, of course, when the comparators make it good for workers. This is all lying out in the uh, document. This never actually gets fully implemented. And so it's very clear that Trudeau sees unions as a a corralling of the working class. You can corral the working class, have only five or six people you need to talk to who will then uh, help discipline the thousands of workers under their membership. But whenever collective bargaining doesn't work for you, whenever the workers win, you can use these formula bargaining and back to work legislation and wage and price controls to effectively limit the right to strike and bargain collectively. What do you think is the kind of influence then connecting senior to junior? What, how does junior follow in the footsteps of his dad? Well, he's less of an intellectual, like in that sense. He doesn't have the intellectual training his father did. Uh, that's not to say I'm not calling him a dum-dum necessarily, but my point is that like he's not a, he, he you know, didn't go to graduate school for philosophy and didn't go to do a PhD, all, all those sorts of things. But I think he has that same kind of vision for liberalism in Canada, which is that it's like, it's a, a way of like preserving a system of capitalism that, protects the interests of the elite and uh, does so in a way that through good rhetoric gets broad approval from the people. And both of them were quite successful at harnessing at their own times, like a desire for progressive change in the late sixties. A lot of people were looking for new things economically, socially, culturally, and Pierre Trudeau 
while still being acceptable to the Bay Street Boys, offered that in so many ways, being relatively young, youthful, the ladies loved him, all of that. Justin Trudeau, very similarly, at a time where we had 10 years of Harper, a lot of non-conservatives were very sick of it. And people didn't really make the connection. But even before that, you had like a very austerity minded liberal party era, like throughout the 90s and early 2000s, where they were more definitively like right wing liberals. People wanted like a progressive nostalgia and like a new definition for Canada. And so out of that comes, you know, Justin Trudeau, again, younger than his dad, more handsome than his dad, I think most people would say. And so it all just comes together as this guy who offers an image that Canadians wanted at a particular juncture, even if that image wasn't based in reality. That was Christo Avalis, author of The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor, and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. Christo is a historian, commentator, YouTuber, and active Twitter personality. You can find his work on our show page, including a link to the extended interview in our YouTube channel. The Conservatives have risen in the polls, and honestly, this has me worried. What has me worried most of all is O'Toole has a very astute political strategy. He's running a kind of pseudo-populist right campaign. He's trying to appeal to working-class voters. This started about a year ago with this Labor Day message. I represent a riding of auto workers, one that depends on manufacturing for its prosperity. And I have to say, things are not okay. Thousands of auto workers have been laid off. Hundreds of thousands. His campaign has had a number of gestures to working people. The biggest ticket item here is a promise to workers to put them on corporate boards. Labor scholars like Larry Savage have called this smoke and mirrors. Union boss Jerry Diaz has called it a grab bag of gimmicks. But what if it worked? Because it has worked before. In the 1993 election, the right populist reform party surged. They even took longtime NDP ridings. That's what Professor Stephen High tells me. He is a historian of deindustrialization, and he grew up in the industrial heartland of Ontario. He saw reforms surge firsthand, and it was not good for the left. So last November, Professor High wrote a piece in Canadian Dimensions that I found rather frightening. It said, Canada is ripe for right-wing populism, and a realignment of working-class politics is taking place that can support its growth if left unchallenged. There is every reason to believe that the NDP will be obliterated in the next federal election. That usually helps the Liberals, but this time it could be different. Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole has signaled that the Conservatives are making working-class voters a priority in an effort to expand their base. Economic populism is now on the table for the first time in a generation. This is the kind of story that's well told in the United States. People like Michael Moore, of course, have been telling it for decades. It goes a little bit like this. You have a hollowed out industrial heartland with these third way Democrats who champion free trade deals and abandon their union base. So what happens is this right wing swoops in with racist dog whistles, meaningless culture wars, and fake anti-elite politics. And so that is how labor goes from left 
to write. You know that story. You've heard that story before. But honestly, it's not the kind of story that's often told here in Canada. But historian Stephen High is telling it. Because for him, it's personal. I'm originally from Thunder Bay, Ontario, um, a son of a railway worker and a school teacher. And so I grew up sort of in the last days of the post-war boom, right, where you had working class people, unionized people who could sort of hope to, you know, work their 30 years and retire. And my earliest childhood memories are of like a small apartment. Then we got a you know small house, then a house in the suburbs. And so in a way, my family was very much riding the wave of those post-war years. And um, and then they came crashing down, right, in the 1970s and 80s, where you see massive job losses. And, and that also impacted my family. My father, uh, a railway switchman, uh, was bridged to retirement at age 51, which, which is a hard thing. Like, in a way, like, he was lucky in the sense that financially he was okay. Have those economic dynamics affected Canada in the same way as they, I mean, you could see like complete ghost towns in the Rust Belt. What about in Canada? Yeah, well, it's certainly like it, it, it was delayed here. What we saw with the Rust Belt was really like the 1970s and early 80s, where you see a collapse of basic industry, steel industry, auto industry, rubber, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so like you say, there's loads of ghost towns, the Detroit's or the Youngstown, Ohio's. And you don't see that same kind of disastrous results quickly in Canada. And part of the reason why was that the Canadian government was willing to intervene in ways that they weren't in the United States. So I'll give you one example. In 1980, Chrysler went bankrupt, right? And so the question is, how do you save all these hundreds of thousands of, of auto workers' jobs? So the Americans bailed out Chrysler on the condition that workers gave up concessions, right? You know, wages, benefits, and so on, so to share the pain. The Canadian government said, okay, we'll bail you out on the condition that Chrysler, you invest hundreds of millions of dollars into new factories in Canada. And so what happened in that process was Canada actually reindustrialized in really interesting ways. And so you have like targeted intervention. Another example would be aeronautics. Canada's aeronautics industry collapsed in the 1970s. The Canadian government took it over, sold it off to Bombardier, and Canada became like, you know, fairly briefly, world leader in, in making jets. You don't see the same crisis until later, right, after NAFTA. You start seeing massive job losses in the Canadian context, particularly after 2000. You look at forestry communities from Newfoundland right through to British Columbia. It's a disaster zone in terms of the number of communities that have lost their, their main employer. So a lot of the issues that exist south of the border now exist here in Canada. I know a lot of these communities in the United States they're starting to get a little bit of attention. Here, the media is even more centralized and more located in a place like where I am in Toronto. And seldom do they venture even out to the suburbs in Oshawa where plants are closing and things like that. I mean, just on a sort of broad sort of meta question, like how aware do you feel that Canadians are about these sort of big changes in the economy that have happened, how much have they really been documented and made plain to Canadians? Well, not very. I think for a lot of communities, industrial communities or deindustrialized communities, they felt as if, you know, their pain, it all happened in silence, right? None of the political parties really 
really spoke, really represented them the way they, they perhaps should have. And it's only when like the major centers get impacted that you start seeing uh, discussion. So the auto sector, you know, even though Oshawa might be far in terms of downtown Toronto, but at least with the auto industry, it's still on sort of government radar. But all kinds of sectors of the economy, textile, for example, which was a huge sector in Quebec, was basically just traded off in negotiations for international trade agreements, right? Like, we'll give up these hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? Because then we can get access to this market or that market for other things. And of course, those jobs were mainly employing women and they were seen as disposable. When was that? Well, that was the 70s and 80s onwards. They lost their jobs first. So Quebec sort of hit the economic hard times before Ontario. Atlantic Canada, of course, has experienced hard times for a long time. So what is kind of our history of then the right populism? You know, we, we had uh, a reform party. Is that kind of the, the first inklings, the first sort of like uh, nascent right populism that we see in the country? Is, it, is there even a history that predates that? Well, there, there were waves of populism that were earlier, like the social credit in Western Canada could be an example of that, or the credits in, in Quebec, sort of a rural populism. And even then back in the 1920s and 30s, you had waves of farmer protest organizations that swept into power to fight big railway companies or banks and so on. So there is a history of sort of protest movements challenge the status quo, that challenge elites, economic, political, cultural elites. And certainly in the Canadian context, we see this earlier than, I think what we're seeing today in the United States or France and so on, in a way, Canada was earlier, not later. So we experienced this in in the early 1990s, where you had the Reform Party really challenging the political status quo during a time of conservative or progressive conservative government under Mulroney. One of the few things in Canada where we're ahead of the curve, I guess. So the the election in 1993 looms very large in this story. What happened then? It was where the progressive conservative party hit a wall, right? They were in power since 1984 and have brought through two trade deals, right? Both uh, the free trade agreement with the United States, then bringing Mexico into it. And the early 90s were a period of economic upheaval, uh, a lot of job losses. And so people were blaming the trade agreements for that. At the same time, Canada was sort of caught up in an endless round of constitutional debates and discussions and agreements and so on. And that made sort of politicians look very much removed from the day-to-day realities of Canadians. It was a, a really, you know, productive moment for, say, a protest movement like reform, which sort of was, again, challenging the East, right? Challenging our electoral system, wanting, wanting to open up to more regional representation, for example, with an elected Senate. And in a way, it was a period where radical ideas were not coming from the left anymore, but were coming from the right. And, and the left was, you know, was sort of caught in a defensive kind of mode where in a way they're like the new conservative party, right? They're just trying to defend the victories of the past, right? Like the, you know, defending the welfare state, defending this, defending that. And so they're back on their heels and they're just trying to save what they can, essentially. So the progressive conservatives were eviscerated. How did the the left do in that election? 
Well, the left was administering it too. And 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 like the NDP under Arch McLaughlin was also devastated. In part because you had very unpopular NDP governments in places like Ontario with Bob Ray, and Bob Ray at the time was a New Democrat, that were that disillusioned a lot of NDP members who felt that who expected more, I guess, from an NDP government. But also disillusioned a lot of voters who felt that the NDP's concerns were removed again from their everyday experiences. And so in a way, in 1993, the old three-party system gets challenged. At the same time in Quebec, you've got the rise of the Bloc Québécois, which is a sovereigntist sort of federal party. <laughs> and so you have this fracturing of this three-party system that had been there since, essentially since the 1930s. And that was because things were in upheaval, right? People were angry. They're asking questions. They're looking for alternatives. They're willing to break out of traditional voting patterns. So fast forwarding a little bit politically, I mean, reform is no longer, right? They become, is it an alliance? And then they merge with what is now the conservative party. And of course, Harper comes out of that tradition, although I don't think many people would think of him as a right populist. Where exactly post-93 does right populism go before it sort of reemerges with O'Toole? Well, I think you have like a, a marriage of convenience between the reformers who are these populists from the West and so on, the Preston Manning sort of uh, current, and these old progressive conservatives, mainly from other parts of the country. Neither one felt they could actually achieve power without the other. And so there was a marriage of convenience and not always a happy <laughs> marriage of convenience. The Harper um, years were were actually not at, at all sort of populist period. They were very much, I think, sort of in keeping with like the Mulroney years, you know, a bit more conservative, but not radically so, right, in the same ways that, that you might see in other jurisdictions. Going forward to sort of this election, your piece in Canadian Dimension was kind of uh, frightening to me, <laughs> insightful but frightening. And I'll read you the, the quote that I found uh, most frightening was, Canada is ripe for right-wing populism and a realignment of working class politics is taking place that can support its growth if left unchallenged. There's every reason to believe that the NDP will be obliterated in the next federal election. You wrote this in November, so much time has passed, but is that still your sentiment? Well, the NDP has the challenge of speaking to downtown sort of urban voters who are focused on things like the environment and global warming and, and so on, and also regional voters, working class voters who for them, it's not like oil and gas or pipelines or forestry aren't just environmental issues. These are actually economic issues. And so there's a disconnect there. So it's very difficult for them to negotiate these two sort of voting blocks, right? And you see this across the country where the NDP has seats. It's in urban areas or in these kinds of unionized resource sort of sector towns. What I thought in November was I, I thought the, the the Green Party was rising, right? And so you have the Green Party eating away at that urban vote, and then the, the Tories, the Conservatives, eating away at that rural or regional vote. The Green Party collapsed, <laughs> which has allowed the NDP, I think, to to maintain some of its vote that that it might not have. 
But I do think that we're already seeing signs that O'Toole's sort of outreach, right, to working class people is starting to have an effect. There was a poll done just this past week that showed that in terms of unionized households in Canada, the Tories are now number two, right, behind the Liberals, but ahead of the NDP. And I think this is really, really important. And I think we're also seeing perhaps some shifts in areas like the northern sort of areas of uh, Manitoba and Ontario Ontario and so on that again have traditionally been NDP or or liberal and again I'll point to I'll point to West Virginia <laughs> West Virginia was the most democratic state like most progressive state in the US you know in 1980 right you know it was like liberal right Today, it is like a Republican bastion, and it's because of coal, right? And coal is an issue that is both an environmental issue and a jobs issue, right? And, and so this kind of, of wedge issue is something that no tools he's running full force on. In the coverage that I've looked up in regards to the strategy, the sort of like overall tone that I've seen on the left is... O'Toole is a con man, essentially. Here's all of the reasons why he doesn't actually represent workers. I think it's probably fair. But I've also seen middle-of-the-road reporting, like CBC in places, quoting a bunch of union leaders, Jerry Diaz and the steelworkers, who are very, very skeptical. And the impression that you get from this reporting is that it's a strategy, but it's a strategy that might not work. Do you think it's going to work? Well, I think it's going to take time, right? I don't think these things necessarily change overnight. But we're already seeing a growing distance between the labor movement and the NDP on the one hand, right? The NDP originally was the Labour Party with a formal link to most unions. A lot of those unions have broken away and are now thinking strategically or, or what have you. But the membership uh, of a lot of unions has shifted. So like Oshawa, so think of Oshawa, you know, auto worker town, ex-auto worker town. Well, it's elected a Tory for the last, what, 15 years, right? Ever since Ed Broadman, pretty much. You are seeing this shift. And it might not be an entirely bad thing, right? That if working class voters are all in sort of one basket, right? If they all vote NDP, well, the NDP could take them for granted, right? And sort of assume they can't vote for anybody else. And everybody else with the Liberals and Tories and so on would sort of just, you know, write them off because they won't vote for you anyways. Now, if working class vote is actually contested, there perhaps is an opportunity that they will be actually listened to more. I don't think that's going to be the case, <laughs> but anyways. So on substance here, I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of political strategy and effectiveness. I mean, what do you make of O'Toole's right-wing populism, so to speak? I mean, is any of it legitimate? Is it all artifice? Well, O'Toole, his father was a politician, right? He represented the same area provincially. And so it, it's an example of a little bit of like political dynasties, right? So how radical can he really be, right? How populist can someone be when you essentially inherit the writing from your father? I think what's influencing him is what's happened in Great Britain with Boris Johnson breaking through in Northern England, taking writings that have you know, been labor for a hundred years. And, and now they're conservative writings, areas that no one thought the conservatives could ever win, and suddenly they do. And I think he's also influenced by what's happening in 
in the United States, so West Virginia or other other places like West Virginia, he's seen that as electoral roadmap towards a majority. Now, whether that happens immediately in this election or whether it happens in two elections, I think it's a smart political move. Now, whether it's real or not, whether he actually is a populist, I'm doubtful. I, I don't see it. But I do think he is taking a bit of a risk within his party because it's not a party that has a history of speaking to or for or with working class people. And the fact that he is doing that very consciously, including like Labor Day messages and so on, suggests that this is different, right? This is significant. Yeah, I I guess the question would be like, is he just going to sell them out? I mean, if he does get their vote and of course, Trump very much did that, sold out his working class supporters But it's not clear to me if even the lesson is learned. That's the thing. Like if you're a worker in Canada seeing the populist, so-called populist messaging of O'Toole, you could maybe draw comparisons. Okay, well, conservative politicians have made this appeal in other places in in the UK and the United States. And has that redounded to the benefit of those communities? No. So will working class communities sort of like take that lesson in and maybe be skeptical of, of the appeal? Well, I don't know if working class people in the United States were betrayed by Trump. Like, yes, he wrote a massive tax reduction for the mega wealthy, but he also reformed NAFTA in a way that was pro-worker, right? Putting in safety clauses to make sure that more work was being done by people basically earning union wages. And this is something that Trudeau never did. He never tried to renegotiate NAFTA, something that Obama never did. I think the jury's out a little bit on Trump's record in terms of working class communities. There are some reasons why working class voters or people without like a university education voted massively, especially if they're white, for Donald Trump. Now, in Canada, are we seeing a new populist wave? I think the populism, the most obvious populism right now is the People's Party, where it's a lot of angry people. You know, it sort of feels like a Trump kind of movement. And where that is coming from, And are there economic sort of underlying reasons? Like, are they angry at these lockdowns because these are precarious people economically, where these jobs are, the impact of them is bigger than on people like me who was able to sort of hide in my my home for a year? I think there are things happening and the old sort of status quo is being challenged. But is O'Toole willing to talk about trade? I don't think he's he's going to go down that road. The Tories have invested way too much in, in, in terms of that sort of neoliberal order. And that's maybe the difference between like, you know, O'Toole who inherits his position versus like a Trump who, who basically, you know, takes over <laughs> a political party from below. That was Professor Stephen High. He is a professor of history at Concordia University in Montreal and author of many books on labor and deindustrialization, including Industrial Sunset, The Making of North America's Rust Belt, and Corporate Wasteland, The Landscape and Memory of Deindustrialization. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jake Hoburn. Our assistant producer this week was Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our research assistant is David Mosscrop, and our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs were by Dakota Coop, and I am your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. 
the address is darts at sightedmedia.ca. Note the new email address, not using Gmail anymore. You can also tweet us at darts and letters. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have extended video interviews with our guests. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Thanks to our most recent ones, Sam Rowan and Rose Palazzo. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. The founding academic advisor of the program is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.